This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today on the podcast, Higher Ed takes on the moment in two distinct ways. First, we hear the story of a postgraduate student and a faculty member brought together by the importance of diversity education programs for healthcare professionals. They tell us how they used a series of seminars and guest speakers to reach their peers, and they share their success. Any business can have requirements, diversity and inclusion requirements. But I think when you have people that are seeking information independently, I think that's when you start to see a shift in culture. Then we head south to a course that faculty hustled to put together to address our new COVID-19 reality. Find out why the University of Central Florida created this remote healthcare class with a hands-on approach. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass. Get unlimited access to ASHA's catalog of CE courses for one annual fee. Learn more at asha.org slash learning pass. We start the show at Towson University in Maryland, where we'll hear from the people behind diversity seminars held for the students and faculty in the audiology program. In the midst of a heightened national conversation around cultural awareness and race, many are looking at how to facilitate these types of discussions. Let's take a look at how Towson is already doing this. The originators for the diversity education seminars there joined me for an interview last month. Now with Grand Valley State University, Jen Smart was the audiology graduate program director at Towson, and April Victoria is her former graduate assistant and is now a certified audiologist. The seed for the seminar series was planted when Jen attended a diversity seminar put on by the director for the Center for Student Diversity at Towson in 2016. Jen wanted to expand this type of education for healthcare professionals and enlisted her graduate assistant, April, in the effort. April speaks first. So I was really excited about it. I actually mentioned as diversity being something that I was passionate about in my letter of intent for when I applied to Towson's program. So to have the opportunity to research it and actually do my thesis on this topic was, it was actually, it was perfect for me. I was very excited. And could you tell me a little bit more about the origins of some of this interest? I actually did my undergraduate studies at a historically black university in North Carolina. So coming to Towson University was a big change for me. And being in a very small cohort was also very new for me. And I was the only person of color in my cohort. And it was a difficult transition. And I didn't feel, I felt a little isolated. And at some point I had to go and speak with someone. So I was encouraged to talk with one of uh, the faculty in the, the ASLD programs. And I did speak with her. And shortly after that, there was some communication with the dean of our program and with Dr. Smart. And I just discussed that I was, you know, feeling isolated and really not happy that some comments were being made or things like that I felt were insensitive. But the faculty really took it seriously. And shortly after that, a minority student mentor group was started. Because I live this, it was really important to me to be able to do the research and show that it it impacts a lot of people. It doesn't just impact me. I understand that you said there were some things that that were said that you didn't like. Were these microaggressions? There were microaggressions, definitely. And I don't even think that the students even realized that they were doing this. It was totally unconscious, but that's what latent biases are. You know, it wasn't 
intentional, but the outcome was the same. You know, I still felt this way. So definitely there were microaggressions and, you know, it wasn't just once or twice. So that is what I, I knew that I had to speak up, even though I really didn't want to. <laughs> and I was nervous and I, I didn't really want to, but I, I had to because I knew that I would be in this department for the next three years, working really closely with all of these students. And so, you know, it was important for me to, to feel welcomed. Jen Smart. You know, at the time that April came to me with her concerns is the same time that I was having this experience and doing the, you know, my own work as a white person, doing my own work and starting to learn and really, really emerging was the same time that April was saying, you know, hey, we have a problem. Clearly it was from a, you know, just a real place of concern like this is not really a healthy environment. And so it all just happened at the a very similar time. And so the commitment was there for me and I needed to do the work and and roll out the program. Um, And then she was also interested, as she said, from a research standpoint, from a bigger picture standpoint. The first seminar took place in 2016, and now they've evolved from once a year to twice a year. Jen says they treat seminars like special community events. They're mandatory, and they bring together the entire audiology department, faculty included. Invited speakers present on specialized subjects focused on issues surrounding LGBTQ+, race, religion, and intellectual and physical disabilities. So when... April organized the religion ones. So we had a professor and then a rabbi. It was like one hour with, you know, one religion and one hour with the other religion. So it sounds like a long time, but when you're really getting an understanding and learning something new, it goes by quickly. I think everyone would agree that they don't feel like long seminars. Jen and April conducted surveys to measure the impact of the speaker series. And when they went over the data last year, they noticed some big changes. We'll hear a number from 2016 first. April and I had created a questionnaire, basically. Um, And so one of the questions on there was, I feel more prepared to interact with diverse patients. And the total positive responses for that was 51.3%, so half. In 2019, so this is the same time of year, fall 2019. But the biggest difference is that this is now something that is an expectation of the program. We're talking about it in classes. We're encouraging it. It, You know, at interviews, we're talking about it. The faculty, the students are doing the work outside of class. So it's four years of seminars later. And so the same question, I feel more prepared to interact with diverse patients in 88.9% were positive responses. And so there was completely a shift of the people in the room. That's a large jump. It was. And so we were really excited to see that. This was another one. So the first seminar in 2016, the question was, the information provided helped me understand myself a little bit more. 18.9% responded positively to that question. But when we looked at it in 2019, 57.4% responded positively. And so again, another huge jump from the people in the room at the time. Wow. Those numbers must be encouraging. They were, well, so this was it, right? This was like the moment where I was like, April, we did it, right? You couldn't, you couldn't see this four years ago, but you could definitely see it here. There's one more that I think is really important to mention. So for anyone out there considering or not sure they'll see the benefit, or maybe they started a program last year and they're just not seeing the other side of it. This was another question. So I want to pursue more diversity education after attending this seminar. So in 2016, only 27%. So they wanted to pursue it. 
in 2019, 78.8% wanted to pursue more diversity education. And that is extremely important. Why do you say that? Because I think that, you know, you can make mandatory seminars, right? Any business um, can have requirements, diversity and inclusion requirements. But I think when you have people that are seeking information independently, they're including it into their personal life, they're reading books in the evening, they're choosing to pursue more diversity education, I think that's when you start to see a shift in culture. April, can I ask you from from your perspective, not as a part of your thesis, but personally, the, you, know, you mentioned that there were some things that were said that you didn't like in the beginning and, the, and that you talked to faculty there about that. Did you feel that there was a change in the culture at Towson? I definitely felt supported. So I, I definitely felt in the beginning, I did not feel that I had any support and at the end, I definitely felt supported by the faculty. I felt supported by fellow students. I think that, that the creation of the minority student mentor group was amazing. Towson, they did not have to do that. And I definitely think it did make a big change. And not just for me, but for all of these students, you know, coming after me also who are students of color or in any minority group, not, not just race wise. I definitely feel that there was a big big positive change for sure by just incorporating the seminars and getting the conversation going. I'd have to assume it can only go so far and that there's probably still work that could be done. I completely agree. And I will tell you that Dr. Iona Johnson is a speech language pathologist. She is an associate clinical faculty member at Towson University, and she runs this amazing group that April's been talking about, the Minority uh, Mentoring group, but she is actually a diversity fellow. Just to clarify, the Dean's Faculty Fellow for Diversity and Inclusion is a position that was assigned by the Dean, and it gives Iona dedicated time to focus on mentoring, training, and developing resources focused on diversity and inclusion initiatives across the College of Health Professions. Our goal was one seminar a year. We now focus on two. Our goal is also, and we were just talking about this the other day, um, a graduate student social justice retreat, which will be a part of our program requirements. And that will be led actually by the university, the Center for Student Diversity. And so, no, it should never be done. It should never be finished. But April brought up a really good, a really, really strong point that there was this other program and that led to something bigger while I worked on, you know, the doctor of audiology program and our education, and that led to something bigger. So no, we're never done. April, do you have any other reflections from this time period? My other reflection is that I definitely feel that, well, I'm very hopeful that our research and the, the work that Dr. Smart has done will bubble over into other aspects of healthcare and not just audiology and speech language pathology, because I think that it's extremely important for anyone who's going into any healthcare profession at all to have diversity education training and to need to continue it throughout their entire career. I think that's really important if, if we're going to uphold our professional and ethical duties as healthcare professionals. And I think right now we're hearing a lot about uh, healthcare disparities because of COVID. Are you optimistic that this type of commitment to diversity and cultural competency um, could have an effect on some of these healthcare disparities? Absolutely. I am 100% very, very confident and hopeful that once people are truly interested and they invest in 
finding educational opportunities and learning more about diversity and how to serve all populations of patients, that will, I feel that will absolutely have a positive impact on the disparities that are very glaring in healthcare. So if someone's listening to this and let's say they're a student or a faculty member, they're feeling concerned about whether or not their students at their university are comfortable working with people from a diverse background when they graduate, what might you say to them? What might you suggest? I think that to implement a diversity education program is actually very easy and it doesn't take a lot of time. Pick the date, pick the expert speaker and tell everyone about it right? Give them three months notice so that everybody can come, but pick those. It's really easy to get started. And if you're in a private practice or a practice that doesn't have, you know, Center for Student Diversity, then reach out to a university close by and see who they would recommend to come and talk to your your office about a topic. And just to get started, that's what I would say, get started, get started somewhere. Excellent. Jen, April, thank you both for sharing. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to share. When we come back, we check in with a class specifically designed to prepare students for the challenges created by COVID-19. ASHA's Office of Multicultural Affairs, or OMA, helps ASHA members address culture and language diversity among professionals and those with communication disorders or differences. To learn more about what OMA is doing to help with issues such as diversity recruitment, visit ASHA.org and search for Multicultural. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass. Earn ASHA CEUs and stay current with the ASHA Learning Pass by accessing ASHA's comprehensive catalog of CE courses for one convenient annual fee. Choose from more than 350 courses on topics important to you. Learn more at asha.org slash learning pass. Now we head south to Florida, where there have been more than 500,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 8,000 deaths. And at the University of Central Florida, a new course addressing the pandemic just wrapped up. This class is called Post-COVID-19 Clinical Practice in Medical Speech Language Pathology, and it's preparing graduate students studying CST for specific ways that the virus is intersecting with speech language pathology. I was recently joined by the founders of the class, two SLPs, Professor and Associate Dean Barry Hoffman, and Instructor Vicki Lewis, as well as a second-year graduate student, Erica Daly. Early in the conversation, Barry describes how the class began. We very quickly had conversations about conceptualizing a course that prepared our students um, in a way while they were um, training with us in our graduate curriculum to be workforce ready. We had students who were during the pandemic, you know, pulled from their internship. We had another cohort of students who wouldn't be able to have an internship, and they were going to be missing some of that critical information and experience being in a hospital setting, an acute care setting, a skilled nursing or rehabilitation setting. And so this course was also developed to provide that resource, medical information, providing up-to-the-minute information regarding COVID status of our patients with their acute needs, as well as discussing some of the long-term needs from speech pathology uh, perspective. Part of the idea behind the class was students wouldn't be getting as much hands-on experience, experience in hospitals and other healthcare settings. So how did you address that? Give me a quick kind of outline of the course. 
Due to the onset of the pandemic, the majority of medical settings in our geographic area were not accepting students for externships. And so we had this large cohort of students that weren't able to gain medical experience either before their graduation or prior to embarking on their graduate externships. And so we wanted to just be able to provide very practical, clinically based information, things that they would have experienced in a healthcare setting. And some of that information is is general, just general information that you would experience as part of you know, your work in the field of speech pathology in a medical setting with an overlay of the specific information related to COVID. You know, for example, the clotting disorders that lead to stroke in the COVID population. So we were able to speak about specific disorders within these organ systems and then, you know, the impact that that would have on the treatment that speech pathologists provide. We also did as much practical training as we could regarding the use of PPE, proper hand washing, and lots of information regarding mask use, as well as the impact of the uses of a lot of these PPE on your interactions with patients. You know, for example, patients um, experiencing difficulty hearing healthcare providers due to the masks being used, patients being fearful of healthcare providers due to the their appearance uh, with PPE, um, and then also the impact on the actual healthcare providers, on the speech pathologists, for having to speak uh, more loudly for a prolonged period of time, and even the, uh, the negative impact on their own vocal health. Vicki and Barry, I understand that you were mailing out boxes of resources to use during labs and to use during the course. Could you tell me a little bit about those? Uh, when we conceptualized this course, we felt that it was really important that the course, while it was going to be fully online, have all of the capabilities of being hands-on, you know, particularly with some of the supplies and technology and tubes um, that are um, utilized within the hospital setting. And so we very quickly worked with vendors uh, that we were able to very quickly obtain 80 of their um, pocket Tom models of the upper airway. Could you explain what that is for people that maybe haven't seen those before? Sure. Uh, The pocket Tom is essentially an upper airway model that is used for training for um, tracheostomy and uh, passe-mirror speaking valves. So the students are able to, you know, have hands-on with a little simulation tool um, with the anatomy and um, with the actual valves that they would be utilizing within the clinical setting. What else was in the boxes? We had um, just a level one mask for the students to utilize. Um, You know, we've all worn masks, you know, to the grocery store and and to different places. But what I wanted the students to do was to wear a mask for um, as close to eight hours in duration as possible, just to kind of get a glimpse of what healthcare workers are are going through. Erica, it sounds like the healthcare setting is coming to your home. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like to have all those materials in your home and what was the reaction from the people you live with? 
I think the most notable one was actually the sample of the thickening products. Those were fun because we did a whole lab with that. And I actually thickened some Dr. Pepper and made my mom try it. <laughs> and she was not a fan. She was she was very reluctant until I kept, you know, urging her. I was like, try it, try it, try it. And then she was like, why did you make me taste this? <laughs> so, you know, the oral care was a nice talking point with my family as well. Throughout my duration of the program, I've really expanded their knowledge on what the scope of an SLP is because you hear our title speech language pathologist and you think that's it. So by them seeing these materials in the bag that I was receiving from my course, it provided me an opportunity to kind of educate my family and what I'll be doing when I get out there and why my profession is so important. That's great. Could you share a few of the uh, most memorable moments from the class? Of course. I really enjoyed the mask wearing lab. I think I wasn't looking forward to it at first because I knew it wasn't going to be the most comfortable, but it was definitely eye-opening to say the least. I wore a mask while doing chores around the house. And as they became more labor intensive, like vacuuming, I found myself getting a little bit more bothered by wearing that. I mentioned earlier that Florida has seen hundreds of thousands of cases of the coronavirus. Prior to the beginning of class, Vicki was working in a hospital treating patients with COVID and her experiences there informed how she instructed the class. I felt like I was walking a fine line because I didn't want to sound like Chicken Little that the sky is falling, but there were days at the hospital where it felt like the sky was falling. You know, I've worked in healthcare for 28 years, primarily in acute care, so I feel like I have a number of years of comparison, and I have never seen anything like we're seeing now. It became a passion of mine to educate students about what's going on out there and what they may encounter to help uh, the patients and the families that are experiencing this, but also to protect themselves. You know, there are people who still discount the risk. And I don't enjoy those conversations with people, but, you know, I will often say to them, you know, this is very real. Um, when you walk through a patient unit that was literally empty prior to the month of March and is now completely full and every patient on that particular unit has COVID and you, you know, see how critically ill these individuals are, it's striking. And I worry about healthcare and, you know, all of the healthcare providers and their safety and just, you know, the extra hours that they're having to work. It's a very frightening situation. Erica, do you feel better prepared to handle that situation after this course? I do. I 100% do. And I think that's due in part to the fact that, you know, speech language pathologists, we like to joke that we're just responsible for the lungs up. And so that's where a lot of our energy goes, right? Um, but through this course, they really emphasize the impact on the patient uh, holistically, um, every system that's impacted by COVID. And so by being more aware of those impacts, I feel better equipped entering into that type of setting, especially knowing that I'll have really strong supervision and that I'm not going in alone and that I have a home base at UCF where I can reach out to all these professors and say, hey, I'm kind of experiencing this type of situation at the moment. I'm a little unsure. What, what advice do you have? You finished the final a few days ago. What's on the horizon for you? I will be embarking into my full-time internship starting in August. I am graduating December, God willing. <laughs> and um, I will be working in an acute setting at a hospital in Florida. 
So I'm very excited. I hope to continue down that path. My passion is medical, and I would love to work in an acute or inpatient setting following graduation during my clinical fellowship year as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for your time. I appreciate the conversation today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Vicki and Barry are preparing for the fall semester. Barry says that there will be a mix of in-person and online classes at UCF. As for the COVID-specific class, they're considering some changes to the course, like including students from other healthcare disciplines to support their interdisciplinary focus. Do you have questions about providing treatment during the COVID-19 pandemic? Go to asha.org and look for the COVID-19 updates banner. From there, you can find setting-specific resources. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass. Access more than 900 hours of ASHA CE content for one annual fee. Learn more at asha.org slash learningpass. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.